who who are we then to these super intelligences? Um, are we so are we a separate species? In which case, are we like um, bonobos or chimpanzees to humans today, such that their future, whether we have bonobos or chimpanzees on this planet, is entirely up to us, 100% in our hands as human beings, right? So we are their overlords, whether we like it or not, whether that's uncomfortable to say or not, we are. So we are setting the stage for a future where we are somebody else's chimpanzee or somebody else's bonobo, maybe, right? So will they be merciful? Will they be benign? Will they, you know, put us in a human zoo and keep us happy? Um, or is there another alternative where actually we co-evolve with the machines so that we're almost indistinguishable from the machines, which might be the better route to go. Because then it makes the question of what is a human and what is a superintelligence uh, more indistinguishable. From the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada, this is Disrupting Good, a podcast that looks at how technologies and trends are disrupting the way we do good. Now, here's your host, Matt Ewins. Welcome to episode two of Disrupting Good. Off the top, you heard James Stotch, director of the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University, reacting to a prediction by Ray Kurzweil, a topic which will resurface later in the episode. Last episode, you heard from top-tier Canadians about the D-word, disruption, how they think and talk about the future, and their reactions to predictions in Kurzweil's Corner. In this episode, we'll be focusing on changes happening within our guests' organizations, what they see when they peer into a crystal ball, and more reactions to some bold predictions of not-so-distant future technologies. For those who jumped past episode one and dived right into episode two, welcome. Disrupting Good is a six-part series of interwoven interviews from 10 human beings that represent different sectors of Canadian society. Throughout the series, you'll be hearing from experts with backgrounds in nonprofit, social enterprise, startup, secondary education, post-secondary education, and for-profit certified B corporations, and their thoughts about how the world is changing and how it might change the way we do good as a society. Disrupting Good is made possible by support from the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University and Human Elements Canada Limited. And now, on with the show, starting with crystal balls and visions of our guests' futures. It's a bit of a journey to get there. Um, so I went into a project management career, did that for several years, made some money, traveled the world a bit and saw how messed up it was. Um, saw a lot of extreme poverty and like many, uh, decided to do something about it. And uh, what doing something about it looked like for me was to uh, sell all my possessions, uh, a couple of condos, a couple of vehicles, and um, invest that in starting a charity called UN Poverty that was helping folks end global poverty um, a few bucks at a time. And I did that for 10 years. And in the 10 years that I was doing that, the world 
changed dramatically. That is Jay Bedala, a voice you haven't yet heard from. Jay is the CEO and founder of Goodpin, a social enterprise that empowers companies to put their funds in the hands of customers, employees, and other stakeholders, allowing these individuals to give to the causes they themselves care about, rather than the limited donation options that companies may have already pre-selected. Jay likes to say that Goodpin, well, it's kind of like a reverse Kickstarter. Um, I work for and started a company called Goodpin, and uh, I am the CEO and founder of that organization. It's a bit of a journey to get there. Um, So I went into a project management career, did that for several years, made some money, traveled the world a bit, and saw how messed up it was. Um, Saw a lot of extreme poverty, and like many, uh, decided to do something about it. And uh, what doing something about it looked like for me was to uh, sell all my possessions, uh, a couple of condos, a couple of vehicles, and um, invest that in starting a charity called You End Poverty that was helping folks end global poverty um, a few bucks at a time. And I did that for 10 years, and in the 10 years that I was doing that, the world changed dramatically. Facebook went literally from zero to 10, and iPhones went from zero to 10. So we're flashed forward into this very mobile, very social world, and the way that I wanted to make uh, a positive influence in the world needed to change as well, I believed. And that's where Goodpin sort of grew out of. Our goal is to bring together people, brands, and charities to uh, make a difference in the world together, right? So we actually help people help themselves. (laughs) Well, essentially, Goodpin is uh, software as a service, a web platform that allows companies to put their charity dollars in the hands of their customers or employees to choose where it goes in small amounts. So if you imagine a reverse Kickstarter, instead of taking 10 bucks at a time into the pot, you take 10 bucks out of the pot and give it to the charity that you love um, and thereby uh, partner with companies to make the difference that you want to see in the world and then they get to really feel uh, closer to you and in an authentic connection and a different type of relationship than buy my stuff, buy my stuff, buy my stuff. They love it. Um, it's interesting at this point in time. So I've been doing Goodpin for approximately seven years now. And um, it's very interesting to see how society has evolved to embrace the concept. So being an entrepreneur, you often see things sooner than the rest of society. You identify a trend and you go all in. And that's how a lot of entrepreneurs fail. Um, We were lucky enough to, yes, we were early identifying this trend of uh, purpose and and that it was gonna weave its way into corporate North America. Um, We were early in identifying that, but we held on long enough until the masses caught up. So now um, we see purpose everywhere. Everyone's discussing purpose. Everyone wants to be purpose-centered as a human, but also as a company. So we caught that early and now everyone is on board. They're very excited. There's still some, uh, at this point, outliers that don't really get it. Like it's still just about money for them, but they're gonna go by the wayside fairly soon. And looking ahead, if Jay had the ability to peer into the future, how does he see Goodpin operating? 
Well, he'll tell you that he sees authentic relationships between companies, brands, and their customers as being where the puck will be, to use a very Canadian saying. Sorry for that. Um, again, I think by spreading the uh, awareness of the company and leveraging technology to empower people to make that difference that they want to make alongside of the brands, because the brands have the, the cash, um, I think those are the major gains, accelerating the ways that that can happen, that connection can happen, and then feeding back the impact to both parties about the difference that they are made, that they did make, and that they are making. Um, as humans, we like to see that we that our actions make a difference, right? So we have agency, we can do something, but then you also want to see that it made a difference in some way. So I think increasingly we're going to have to close that loop in an authentic way. Um, yeah, that's that's going to be another challenge is keeping it authentic, right? In the, in this whole transactional world, keeping that relationship between people, brands, and charities authentic is going to be hard because technology can often be a barrier in uh, maintaining authentic relationship. Returning guest Lior Rothschild, the executive director of the nonprofit Canadian Business for Social Responsibility, feels having a strong organizational identity built upon defined purpose and mission allows their future to be navigated with confidence. So if I was going to project out five years from now and talk about what CBSR's mission would be, I think that, it, well, it's a good question, and CBSR recently has done a lot of work in revisiting its purpose and mission. And certainly from our point of view, the, the mission is really a, a focal point. This is what we, we strive to become, what we're, we aim to do. For us, it's really about accelerating and scaling uh, social and environmental sustainability in Canada and uh, and bringing stakeholders together and providing very useful um, uh, support that uh, keeps us relevant in, in our stakeholder groups. But we've also introduced, a, a, I think, a strong purpose statement, which is for us about helping Canadian business and governments to build and benefit from a sustainable future. I don't really see that changing every few years necessarily. And I think that the whole idea around having a strong purpose and a, and a simple, easy to understand purpose statement is really, really important. And I, I advocate for this a lot in the networks that I run in about being a, a purpose-driven organization. We get to work with a lot of really, uh, really cool organizations and one that comes to mind very quickly when I talk about purpose, because I just think it's a beautiful example is uh, Maple Leaf Foods, so kind of an iconic Canadian brand company that uh, has been a, a meat processor, you know, since its origins and uh, really has been in a transition period, uh, not necessarily a transition to say we're no longer going to be a meat processing company, but our transition to say that we're thinking a lot broader than that we want to be the most sustainable protein company on earth. So they're not talking about meat in that statement. They're talking about protein and a sustainable protein company. And, and that, that completely changes what the organization does 
and how they do it. And um, uh, it, it, I mean, it's interesting how they go about it, but I think that it drives the incentives from an HR point of view. It attracts people also from an HR point of view. It also uh, attracts investors too. So it's profitable to be a purpose-driven organization and it drives action in the areas that are priorities. And I think that it, the distractions tend to go away. Companies, well, any organization can't be all things to all people. So you need to focus and the ability to look at everything you do and say, is this actually helping us to achieve our purpose is something that I think always need to be doing. Uh, but maybe another part of what I think we're alluding to when we're talking about CBSR five years from now, I do see that from a business model point of view, yeah, we need, we need to get a bit creative in terms of how we achieve our purpose over the long term. And uh, yeah, the, I know that um, uh, like there's, there's a lot of change happening in the um, social enterprise world and uh, you know, is there room for more hybrid kind of organizations? I think all of these, all of these questions are on the table. So how we achieve our purpose is definitely in, in flux, it's in play, uh, but the, um, by having a strong focus on purpose is, is important to us and, and it should be to any organization. Carl Swanee, who you'll remember from episode one as the digital cartographer and CEO of Ecosec, a social media geofencing platform, believes that the future will embrace platforms like Ecosec and allow the democratization of information. For outreach into journalism and that sort of vertical, and I know that I'm taking this more from the business side right now, but when I see what's going on in the world, like if I look at Venezuela and, and the the very limited amount of media coverage that's happening in that area versus the amount that I see people posting on the social side, especially publicly online. Right now, there isn't really a, a way to view that information um, in a really palatable format. And I think that ours has the ability to do that so that you can really see what's going on in areas that aren't getting the media coverage that I think they deserve. So being able to open that up and being able to uh, democratize news to a certain extent and be able to share that information or have journalists be able to build stories upon relationships that they've developed through medium that isn't necessarily making them be on the ground where they can't be um, will be a very powerful tool in the next 10 years and will change the way that we look at the world. And, you know, we're talking about satellites going up in the air where we'll have this global coverage. And I think there's so many important things happening that we just don't really understand um, in a global perspective. There's, you know, certainly, and I will use Caracas as an example again. I mean, we've watched over that for years now, um, waiting for it to waiting for something to change. And unfortunately, it just gets more restrictive over time. And that is something that I think will not exist in the future. We'll be able to see into those places and have conversations that are valuable and important, meaningful, and really change the world for a better place. I'd like to introduce you now to Rahim Sajan, a man of many hats and a pillar in the Calgary community. An educator in an alternative public high school co-founder of TEDx Calgary, University of Calgary Senator, 
and the founder of the Resourceful Human Project. Rahim is someone who I would describe as a, a deep thinker. However, he describes himself as learning architect. So the whole architecture thing has never really left me, but this idea of being a teacher uh, looked at from above has been about being create or creating learning environments. So they could be in the conventional environment of a school or in other community spaces in which I roam as part of my social enterprises. But I, the core sort of identity that has come together for me over the last little while, the vector, has been that of a learning architect. I say yes to things that allow me to build architecture that allows for learning to happen. Looking to the future for Rahim's resourceful human project, he definitely sees the need to be agile and to modify his original plan. I would say uh, there are some pivots ahead in terms of the concrete outcomes that I wanted to have out there. My original outcome was a map, uh, a physical map that is gifted to every parent of every new child that's born. I think that needs to change in some sort of way. I also see the project being present in policymakers' minds in trying to define the purpose of their education systems. I mean, that original goal has not changed, so I certainly hope and expect that that would be changing at this point, because even here in Alberta, we are actually uh, going through an exercise to try and uh, create change within our education system. Uh, what direction is that change going in? Could those stakeholders learn something, policymakers, uh, politicians, etc., learn from this, this project that is really generational. It's not about the ideologies at any one moment in time. It's about the long run of the human story. Definitely this sort of challenge of expertise. Uh, one person doing this particular project can master all the different elements. Like for example, the Resourceful Human Project looked at, looks at academic processing as a real skill for someone to be resourceful rather than to be a human resource, the notion of critical thinking. I'm by, by no means an expert in this area. So this idea of marshalling different people from different parts of the world, from different perspectives, to contribute to this project, because we certainly in the West don't have a monopoly on good thinking. So these voices need to be marshaled from all over the world, and that will be one of the challenges that I'll have to continue to work on to uh, get voices from uh, the global sort of perspective to feed in into this project. Because this, the, this map, virtual or otherwise, will have to be as relevant to a child in Xinjiang, or it could be in Sao Paulo, or it could be in Timbuktu. Wherever that child needs is, how can we help them become a resourceful human? I think that when we started looking at the challenges that companies were facing, um, we really coalesced around the idea of creating a artificial intelligence coworker um, that would help individuals in the company to do their jobs better and easier. And so, you know, in 10 years from now, we believe that everyone will have an AI coworker that they work with. That's Brianna Brownell, founder and CEO at Pure Strategy Inc., a company that uses artificial intelligence to remove the anxiety that comes with worrying that important information is overlooked within organizations by providing personalized AI solutions to help understand unstructured data. Now, if you're not entirely sure what that means, 
join the club. However, we first met Brianna in episode one, where she shared her reaction to the prediction that virtual reality will be 100% realistic by the mid-2030s. Well, I'm the founder of an artificial intelligence company, and uh, I started out before that as a data scientist, and I worked with companies in all kinds of different industries trying to solve their uh, problems with their data analytics and uh, found that there was a lot of really interesting things that you could do in that area. So I started my company about three or so years ago. And so I started my career, um, you know, looking into some of those questions about how humans behaved. And so it's an endlessly fascinating topic because there are all kinds of unique ways that humans interact with each other in around the world. And so, you know, it's always been a really interesting, interesting field to be in. So the reason that uh, I started my company, I, I laughingly say that I started it because I wanted to code my brain into a computer. Um, but, you know, really there's a, a strong grain of truth in that, in that I wanted to understand how um, some of the tasks that I was doing could be performed by a computer. So um, the big one was understanding human language. So when I was working with customers, often they would have a lot of data in the form of, you know, comments on a customer satisfaction survey, or they would have complaints that would come in, or, you know, they would have, say, um, information from interviews with stakeholders. And it was always really challenging to be able to do something with that uh, with a computer. And what I wanted to do is be able to take on some of those tasks and be able to provide insight into that kind of data using technology. I think that when we started looking at the challenges that companies were facing, um, we really coalesced around the idea of creating a artificial intelligence coworker. Um, that would help individuals in the company to do their jobs better and easier. And so that's really what our mission and vision is, is that can we provide um, an AI coworker that can help people in their everyday jobs? And so, you know, in 10 years from now, we believe that everyone will have an AI coworker that they work with. Because the truth is, there have been a lot of advances in artificial intelligence, um, especially in terms of consumer applications of it. Even if you just look at uh, Netflix and recommendation systems, or you know any kind of data analytics like that, but in a large part, it hasn't really affected the way that most people work. And so I think that that's going to be the most fundamental change within the next decade. Is that AI will begin to drastically affect the way that people work. When I think about my own life and how the way my workflow has changed over the years when I use technology, I can certainly see working closer and closer with an AI coworker to complete mundane and routine tasks in record time. Even looking at the production of this podcast series, we use an AI transcription service that very quickly and inexpensively converts audio recordings of our guests' interviews into text files which then allows us to cut and paste content in the hopes of better curating each episode. It's not a big stretch for me to envision in the near future an executive director of a small nonprofit or a CEO of a startup social enterprise 
having a digital coworker that provides the right information and results at the right time, streamlining their workflow and allowing a higher rate of productivity per person hour of work. That should translate into a higher impact towards the mission at or below the current cost to the organization. I'd like to take a quick break right now and introduce something we've been calling Cool Mission We'll Share, where we introduce to you an organization that one of our guests feels is on the right path and performing excellent work in the area of doing good. And a new to this episode guest, Dr. Alina Turner, has chosen a good one for you. Well, I, couple, I have a couple of roles and a couple organizations, so I'll start to maybe with the more traditional one, which is a research fellow at the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. So my role there is to um, develop and disseminate knowledge relevant to social challenges in contemporary Canadian society with a public policy angle, of course. The other role is as CEO and founder of, with my husband, Travis Turner, of HelpSeeker. And that's a platform that uh, provides people with access to services closest to them to deal with social challenges or health challenges. And then on the back end, it provides analytics to decision makers and service providers on how their services are being accessed and what we're seeing in terms of demand and uh, those kinds of trends using big data. Alina's chosen organization is a key player in a significant social safety net disruption. And the organization we'd like to share with you is the Medicine Hat Community Housing Society, or MHCHS for short. Alina sees MHCHS leading the charge through a collective impact model, bringing different players together to look at the social safety net through a different lens, with all stakeholders being involved in a person-centric, co-design and redesign process. They are shaping how the entire system can work. The project is working within a traditional structure, but the collective is doing the agile work, and this project is one to watch. Since 2015, Medicine Hat has held the distinction of being homeless-free, a coveted feat which has challenged nearly every urban center in North America. The community accomplished this in large part with the help of MHCHS, which offers affordable community housing and seniors programs with properties managed by their organization. You can learn more about the Medicine Hat Community Housing Society by visiting mhchs.ca. Maya Angelou once said, Stepping onto a brand new path is difficult, but not more difficult than remaining in a situation which is not nurturing to the whole woman. And if we substitute whole woman for whole organization or whole sector, I hope this sentiment aligns with what many who try to do good with their work experience with respect to ever-present change in the workplace. When we interviewed our guests, we asked what types of changes their organizations have been through or are going through right now. Let's start with Doug Watson, the president and CEO of Propellus, the volunteer center of Calgary, Alberta. And as Doug discusses, Propellus has been through some significant changes. So I have the privilege of leading the organization called uh, Propellus, which is the volunteer center of Calgary. 
So we're all about volunteerism. Uh, volunteerism is incredibly important across the country, uh, probably in any community, but certainly in Canada. Uh, and uh, Alberta has one of the highest rates of volunteerism across the country. Uh, while volunteerism is uh, the volunteer rates, so the population volunteers at a rate of about 44%. In Alberta, we volunteer at a rate of about 51%. So if you think about here in Calgary, how does it benefit Calgary. This is what we like to say is that the GDP of uh, Calgary is around $103 billion a year. And volunteerism, which is not counted in that uh, GDP, but if it were, is worth about $3.6 billion. Um, so imagine what happens to that $103 billion if you take away all the volunteer effort that happens in the city that makes uh, the world go round because you got about 700,000 people out there volunteering and that's at an average of uh, 161 hours a year. So it's pretty significant uh, amount of time and like I say, if you quantify it in dollars, it's a uh, it's significant impact to this city. Uh, so we support organizations that uh, are seeking to have volunteers, so nonprofits and charities. And the way we do that is by matching them, um, the volunteer who has an interest with the organization that's able to meet that interest uh, through an online platform called the Volunteer Connector. We, we prefer the Airbnb or the Uber because we're taking uh, the chaos of a volunteer system that maybe you've experienced when you've looked for volunteer opportunities and uh, creating order out of that system. I think a lot of people who uh, knew the organization even 15 years ago probably wouldn't recognize it now. Um, and maybe even uh, those who knew it six years ago wouldn't recognize it now uh, other than the name and the core cause that we, uh, um, that we care about. I listened to other people and so did the people, my colleagues, <laughs> listened to other people and the wisdom out there. And the wisdom is this, uh, you know, we're in the 21st century. Um, that means something. If you think, and you could debate this if you want, but uh, air travel, uh, particularly uh, commercial travel, changed the 20th century uh, for the world. Before that, the steam engine changed the world. Before that, um, industrialization changed the world. All of these things, like something changes the world every century. Um, here we are in the 21st century, and we ask ourselves, what's going to change the world? And if uh, and I think that this is the uh, century where we'll see the internet actually change the world. And, uh, and so for us, we're sitting there going, well, then what does that mean for volunteerism? And 15 years ago, uh, they were talking about what would that mean for volunteerism, and that's when we launched our first digital platform. So well ahead of the curve. And at that point, it was really just a postings, almost like an Excel spreadsheet on a, on a page. Um, but it's evolved over time, and so now we're sitting there saying, what if we never met with another human and everything we did was digital? And that's why I say vastly different than what you would have seen 20 years ago, which is it is entirely human-based. Um, now we're saying, what if it's entirely digital? I think this is the first time where we have the opportunity to take a look at the entire system of volunteerism and say, okay, uh, what can we do to better this? What can we do to change this? What are the levers that are available to affect this? Um, before this, without 
being able to digitize that, I don't know if we'd have been able to look at every lever. If you think about all the way across the country, if you think about um, the many communities, the many different experiences uh, that a, a human would have when they want to get involved in their community. Um, yeah, it's, it's generated a lot of imagination. And so we're just trying to take that one step at a time and say, okay, well, what's the first thing? What's second? What's third? Um, but we really believe we have the opportunity to do something special in the, in the next, uh, call it five years, because you've got to pick something. We, uh, three years ago, um, when I took over this role, I guess three and a half years ago now, I spent the first six months just thinking about, like, what, what is the change that needs to happen? Because we needed to undergo some change. And uh, one of those things was, uh, can we be leaner? And as we think about uh, um, embracing a digital future, uh, it certainly supports a lean uh, approach to operations. And so what I tell people is when I started at the organization six years ago, we were 19 people. And uh, now we're the better part of seven people. And we do exponentially more work mm. and outcomes and outputs and all of that good stuff. Um, and it is different work that we're, uh, that we're endeavoring to do now. So it's not a like for like comparison. Um, but certainly, uh, from that goal of, uh, if efficiency and effectiveness, um, definitely tick that box. Yeah. So we certainly, certainly have, I mean, we've undergone, um, a change in just the way that our mission is set up. That was Heather McPherson. At the time of her interview, she was the executive director of the Alberta Council for Global Cooperation. However, she has since moved on from the ACGC and is now a member of parliament in the House of Commons Canada, representing the constituency of Edmonton Strathcona. For the purposes of disrupting good, however, please understand that she is not speaking as a member of parliament. And with that out of the way, here's Heather talking about change disruption and reinvention yeah so we certainly certainly have i mean we've undergone um a change in just the way that our mission is set up the sustainable development goals for us were embedded into our strategic plan and our strategic directions and that has changed the way that we do our work that the the sdgs were signed into being in 2015 and they were put into our strategic directions in 2016 so that changed our work a lot. In addition to that, though, what we've seen is there's there's been sort of a bit of a rise of um, a rise of the desire in Canada to work with uh, those organizations that are not necessarily based in Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, and so that changed our our sector and changed our organization a lot. So instead of us having um, you know, having to be in Ottawa to be able to have conversations about what's happening in international development and, and global citizenship. Now we're having those conversations in Calgary. We're having those conversations in Edmonton. There's there's people coming from around the world to talk about what that looks like here. So I think that's been a bit of a, a change for us, a, a, a different way of us doing things. And it's it's fundamentally going to change how we move forward for sure. I think for me, the biggest journey has been that you, we can't make the changes that we need to make if we just try to do more of what we've always done. 
if we if we try to keep things as business as usual, we can't get to where we would need to get to be in a sustainable development um, a situation where where the world is moving in the right direction. Um, what that means to me is that we need to turn some things on its head. We need to start working in partnerships that we maybe haven't worked in before, uh, partnerships that are maybe uncomfortable that we're not used to. Um, a perfect example is that we're trying very hard to work quite closely with the private sector. And it's, it's not an easy conversation for civil society organizations to work with private sector on occasion. We have different ultimate goals that we're, that we're working towards. So I think, yeah, I think those, those are some of the, the biggest lessons is that it's easy to try to do more of what you're already doing. It's easy to say, we need more money from the government, we need more resources, and we'll just keep doing the same thing. Uh, it's hard to reinvent, but yet I think the reinvention is where we're, where we're going to need to have to go. James Stotch from the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University, who you may remember from the top of this episode, is looking at how his organization has changed as the world off the academic campus has also evolved. Um, generally pretty uh, pretty good, I, I, I think, in, on most fronts. Um, the one thing, I mean, it's always a trade-off. On the one hand, we've been um, less singularly focused on the nonprofit sector, and so those in the sector, I think, you know, in some cases... Um, have said, well, you know, you, you haven't you haven't been doing as much for our sector specifically. Um, you know, also we we have been engaging less with the kind of formal academic community, the formal community of researchers. So we um, attend fewer academic conferences. We partner um, less frequently with um, uh, with academics who study uh, the nonprofit sector singularly. On the other hand, we've greatly expanded our uh, public audience, our student engagement, and um, and we have made inroads into other realms and sectors, including the the, the public sector and the private sector, and and in areas um, that we had a tangential relationship with before, such as co-ops and credit unions and uh, social enterprise, um, and so you know there's trade-offs, but I think. We are much more comfortable with this, uh, with what we're doing now, in that we feel like we're enmeshed in questions of social good. We're not, we're not putting a particular legal form on any uh, kind of arbitrary pedestal. So, I think our north star is more interesting now. If you talk about the marketplace, if you talk about entrepreneurship, for example, um, you know, no one wears a badge of honor um, based on their legal form, right? Look, nobody says, uh, we're, uh, we're standing up for all limited liability corporations. Um, you might see it in the co-op sector a little bit, where co-op is such a novel form that there are champions within that sector. Although, there's also many co-ops that, that are very clear to say, the fact that we're a co-op is beside the point. We run this place like a business. So I think it's important to also have that attitude with the nonprofit sector. Um, with respect to management, you do run it like a business. It is a social business that just has one key difference, and that is that you do not distribute profit to ch shareholders. 
But there's lots of myths that, that come with nonprofit. You can make money, right? You, we, we, you can make money. It just gets rolled into the organization. Um, there are certain things that are kind of um, strange, uh, paternalistic kind of um, Victorian hangovers that still reside with the sector. Things like um, the limitations on political uh, speech or, or, uh, or advocacy. The courts are increasingly recognizing that there actually should be no such limits, except with the exception maybe of partisan limits. Um, and those, those kinds of things have their roots in a gender analysis of the sector. The sector in many ways is an extension of the way in which we viewed the role of women in the family, which is to say that was the informal part of the economy. No one wrote about it. You know, Adam Smith never wrote about it, even though it was vital to him finishing The Wealth of Nations. And yet, it's in a sense, it's that caring function and sharing function that extends outside the household that society relies on. Otherwise, society would collapse, quite frankly. Um, markets would collapse. Contracts would be of little or no use. Um, governments would be prone to corruption and so on. So strong civil society is essential. And yet we've treated it much the way we have treated the role of women in the household uh, from an economic standpoint, which is um, we kind of marginalize it, we forget about it, it, we see it as, you know, at best kind of an externality, kind of cleaning up the mess that, that, that others have, have made, uh, when in fact it's actually essential to provide a base for everything else to function. And so I think part of the nonprofit sector's identity crisis is that we've, by saying nonprofit, it's, um, we've kind of assumed our marginal status and internalized that. And actually, we're the most important part of society. We are the organizational manifestation of the health of society itself. And everything else relies upon a strong civil society. So we just have to kind of take that and wear it as a badge, stand up for ourselves, um, and uh, embrace the tools and the attitudes that, w that, that are available to us um, and without apology. And here again is Lior Rothschild with Canadian Business for Social Responsibility, talking about the change his organization has experienced and how while disruption might not necessarily be a bad thing, it's not always an easy thing either. Yes, of course. CBSR as a 25-year-old organization has gone through many iterations. And so it's gone through a lot of change. I think that's been really the key to the survival of this organization is it's been nimble and has adapted. And, uh, and to be honest, we continue to do that. We are, I think that in this space, you, you have to be innovating or else you won't last too long. And I see it with other organizations who resemble us somewhat. So uh, we can talk a lot more about some of the dysfunction that exists in the NGO or not-for-profit space. There's certainly a lot of it, I would say. There, there's also a lot of really amazing case studies out there too. So happy to speak to those as well. Um, but the old models of, of how, you, how you fund this work, how you build really exceptional teams, um, how you facilitate 
uh, different stakeholders and and move people towards action. Uh, the, the, that that's another example of innovation at work because the whole idea of social innovation and creating experiences where people can incubate new ideas and collaborations. The there's a whole school of thought around how to do that more effectively today than we did years ago. And so, yeah, I would say that we're definitely evolving. We're definitely identifying a few key areas that we think are emerging where we're, we're specializing, but the business models are also in flux and we're, you know, I, I'd say it's a work in progress. We're, we're still um, kind of in the process of nailing it, but, but we see some really exciting opportunities moving forward. And so we're pursuing them. And that's uh, that's what you have to do these days. Um, I think the days of large, inflated, uh, not-for-profit organizations uh, that have, you know, like seventy different programs, uh, like those days are so over. And it's definitely about being lean and really understanding your niche. So yeah, so I would say that, like every not-for-profit organization. Uh, we've we've had to undergo that. I would say that we've gone through disruption ourselves for sure. Um, and when I take a look at the landscape, I see that across the not-for-profit sector, especially in Canada, the the funding models are have changed. Um, CBSR has traditionally been a membership-driven organization, meaning that we have companies who our members and they get all kinds of uh, services. Uh, we do also have a, a charitable arm that just does research and education projects. Um, and typically those projects are funded through various means, some government funding, foundations, some private sector funding as well. And um, CBSR used to have a thriving consulting business as well, which is a bit unique for a not-for-profit organization. I would say that we currently don't have that that consulting arm anymore. Uh, I think it changed a lot when several other uh, larger corporations moved into the sustainability consulting space. I think um, it was difficult for a nonprofit to compete with that level of professional service. So uh, yeah, it's been, I would say it's been a disruptive process, but I I see that as not necessarily a bad thing. It's a difficult thing, but it, it uh, I think it's it can be healthy. But at the same time, if you do look at Canada compared to other jurisdictions, um, like for example, um, there's a there's other not for profits that have access to large family foundations who give away a large percentage of their holdings. In Canada, we have a very small number of foundations and they give away a very small percentage of the money that they actually have invested. So you're you're getting a, a small percentage of the interest and they're spreading it across a lot of organizations who are coming to them for that funding. So it it's a I would say it's it's a difficult time for not for profits at the moment. When you're a fast-growing software company, change is is, uh, is almost a word that you, you, you don't use anymore because it's such a it's, a, it's such a constant. That's Brian Delottenville, 
CEO and founder of Benevity, who we first met last episode. A quick synopsis of Benevity, they are a registered B Corporation and lead the world in corporate social responsibility and employee engagement software for online giving, matching, volunteering, and community investment. When you're a fast-growing software company, change is, is, uh, is almost a word that you, you, you don't use anymore because it's such a, it's a, it's such a constant. But uh, you know, in terms of product direction and, and uh, strategic direction, we have to continue to make now better uh, for our clients, their users, ultimately the, the customers of our corporate clients. I mean, our, our approach um, to our business is really using corporations as, as somewhat of a, a gateway and aggregation strategy to get at um, individuals. So helping companies help people be their best selves in their everyday lives is really what our broad vision is, is about, and, and uh, they're a great vehicle and venue to do that. And increasingly, uh, I think this year, for the first time ever, people's employers were their most trusted institution, which is, you know, ahead of government, ahead of nonprofits, ahead of, um, ahead of everyone. So it's both uh, an obligation and an opportunity um, to sort of catalyze people in in uh, in efforts like that, so we will continue to improve on what we've got and think about, uh, as I said uh, earlier, think about ways in which we can help people climb that engagement ladder so that they're doing more than just these transactional things, more than just giving money to causes of their choice. They're coming in behind that with skills-based volunteering. They may be collaborating with, with uh, their company or other companies in, in product and in-kind donations that those organizations need. We may be using other organizations' skills to uh, help these companies achieve, or these non nonprofits achieve their social mission goals, and and so that that idea is just moving more, and then mobile, and 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 some of these other elements um, moving toward this idea of of having a robust ecosystem that's content driven and activity driven, and and achieves network effect on a on a, a broad global scale. Um, but you're often kind of torn between like, oh, well, I could, I could make it successful if I just don't say that anymore or, or if I just kind of, you know, play nice on this item. And then I was like, nah, you know what, f*** it. I don't care, right? That's Dr. Alina Turner again, who we first met earlier this episode. As you can tell, she's rather passionate about doing good and also doing good as a startup entrepreneur, which has meant having to make decisions and changes to plans, relationships, and strategies? Oh, yeah. Tenacity for sure. And it's, it's interesting because every time you, um, you hit these initial walls, it's actually a sign that you're doing something right. That's been a lesson. If you're not getting any resistance, then it's probably not disruptive, <laughs> like by definition, right? So I'm like, well, you know, you kind of got what you asked for, didn't, didn't you, Alina? <laughs> That's exactly what you wanted. You wanted to shake things up. I have the other thing is like for us, we don't have anything to lose, if that makes any sense. So I'm, I'm not sure how to express that because not everybody has that luxury. But we're in a point in our careers where you know we've left our mark. We've we're um, 
you know, we're we're stable. We've ha- have these other businesses that can. If Help Seeker, Help Seekers was created to be disruption, and and to do that at at the cost of um, of its own existence, if necessary. So you have to ha- that lesson being that, you know, if you're true to that to this being that spark or that catalyst, and you really believe that this is this is how you're gonna do it, you actually have to be okay with it not being successful too, right? And so now we've been lucky that it has been successful and there's been great lessons in, in that. It's more than, it's more than um, this being a successful business, it's actually, it has a mandate. It has that purpose and, and that vision. So that's been a learning too is, um, and I guess we, not necessarily a learning, it's been a confirmation of that have, having been the right decision up front. But I don't think a lot of people think that way. Speaking of startups, let's return to Jay with Goodpin, who opens up about the need to be agile and allow yourself and your organization to make changes in order to be relevant. Yeah, we've, um, we've done a few minor shifts and pivots along the way in seven years. Um, a platform that was bringing together three parties, people, brands, and charities, and and figuring out how to best bring those three parties together to make a difference in the world. That created win, 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 wins. Um, It was a bit challenging at times. We went down one path and and, uh, started out with, okay, we're gonna put a button in everyone's hand to make a difference in the moment they wanna make a difference. So we started with the people part of that three-way platform. We figured that out, we could do it, but as a startup that would take millions of dollars to create awareness. So not really a tenable solution. And then we shifted our focus to, uh, can we be a platform for charities to bring in sponsors and people? And yes, we could do that, but often charities don't have time or money, they're already overworked. And even if you go to them and say, if you put 10 minutes into this thing, you'll make 100,000 more dollars for your charity. Quite honestly, they don't have the time or the energy, the human energy. So then we shifted our focus to uh, companies. Can we solve a problem for companies? Because now companies really want to make a difference um, in an authentic way. And sure enough, we when we focused on the problems that we could solve for companies, things went off the charts for us. Things lit up and we uh, rebuilt the platform, uh, released that in October of 2018, just last year, and now have been growing uh, substantially. So we've hit our traction now. Yeah, product market fit, they call it. Uh, it's really neat to see so much social good coming out of one city and a Canadian city. I'm so proud of that. Um, Benevity is essentially a platform for companies to engage their employees, whereas Goodpin is more focused on companies engaging their customers. So yes, both platforms can be used for the other, but that's our, our main strength is we want to help companies engage with their customers in making a difference in the world. So democratizing corporate social responsibility, like uh, reinforcing the message to a company, it's not about you, brah. It's about your customers. It's about what they care about. Um, and, uh, you know, quite honestly, again, it's not either or, it's and. A company does need to stand for something, uh, and that's important, but I think it's equally important to empower your stakeholders um, being your customers and your employees to make a difference that they want to make. It's an and, as most things in life are. (laughs) And closing out this section on change is Carl Swanee from Ecosec. 
Carl briefly discusses being a more experienced individual in the role of leader, especially one in a fast-paced environment with less experienced staff. Large-scale growth, really for me, to be honest with you, I'm a little bit of an older startup CEO, and it means bringing on a lot of younger, cool people that I really, really enjoy working with. And I'm of the belief that, you know, you you really need to arm your generals to go out and win. And watching all of them kind of grow into positions and excel at what they're doing and bring their sort of interesting and great ideas to the table is is what keeps me coming to work every day. Welcome listeners to Kurzweil's Corner, a peek into our possible collective futures. Inventor, author, and futurist Ray Kurzweil has a technology prediction success rate of roughly 86% since the 1990s. Kurzweil has received 20 honorary doctorates, has been awarded honors from three US presidents, has authored seven books, is named on at least 145 patents, and currently heads up an AI program at Google. Using the law of accelerating returns, a law that looks at exponential trajectories in technology, Kurzweil has successfully predicted the emergence of many technologies, with two of his most famous predictions being that the computer would defeat a world chess champion by 1998, and that people would be able to talk to their computer and give commands by 2009. In this chapter of Kurzweil's Corner, we're sharing reactions from our guests to two of Kurzweil's predictions. The first prediction, that in the 2020s, that's this decade, dear listeners, normal human eating will be replaced by nanosystems. So, you'll hear in order the voices of Dr. Lena Turner of HelpSeeker, Jay Bedala of Goodpin, Brianna Brownell of Peer Strategy, and Carl Swanee of Echosec. Seems like the uh, fitness and diet industry is going to have some rework to do. <laughs> So that that's interesting, or and as well as the whole service um, industry around restaurants, right? The, the food industry itself is right. So if you think about if you're not if you no longer need the traditional food production distribution systems because it's all through nano tech, then like what are we again? What are we going to do with all these people? <laughs> that, actually, all these cows too. <laughs> so the that's interesting because it's uh, it's painting the picture again for this need to to think about um, literally how are we going to entertain seven billion people if they're not no longer in these traditional manufacturing um, service jobs, especially because they those jobs tend to be the lower paid ones, so they're going to obviously be the the first to go. We're going to find cheaper and cheaper ways to replace labor with uh, with tech and so um, it makes sense why the spur of that is you know there's a social good because obviously the health of humans is going to improve if you can you control the nutrient factors you control the portions you control all of that in in the production of that um, through that technology piece but then interestingly it, it still begs the question of what are we going to do if if uh, Essentially, it's the genie. It's an unlimited genie out of the bottle because 
you know, you've got everything you could ever want that you can pull out of thin air. Like that's like, it's magic in, in some ways. Back in the day, we call that, yeah, we call that magic. So, um, yeah, what are we going to do with ourselves if the pursuit of, the, of goods? Because if you can create food, you can create anything. That means gold is irrelevant. Like you can make any, something out of nothing. So um, what is that going to mean for value? What's going to be valuable? What's going to be the currency if, right, if that's the case? So I'm guessing the, the access to that technology is going to be the currency, right? And so whoever owns that technology, hopefully it's the state. Because <laughs> if not, it's like you only get this many megabytes of processing power to create your food rations for the week, and they, you, you have to have white bread and craft or not because you know you're low class so you better eat healthy when, when you think about it when we talk about nanotechnology being inserted inside of us like what's the difference of having to type into Google on my computer versus type into Google on my phone wherever I am versus tell Siri on my phone to look something up versus have it implanted in me and just think it like there's, what's the difference? It's just more convenient. It's just saving time. So it, it's terrifying at the same time because it's change. It's not what we're used to. So we don't know where this is gonna lead, right? But it's, it's pretty crazy. What a great time to be alive. It is what uh, brings us together and allows us to commune and connect, right? That's, that's absolutely true. So it's not just the pleasure of eating, but it's actually the, the, um, the ritual of joining together over meals. So removing that seems very weird, unsettling. So my question I think for, for Kurzweil on this one is why would you want to do this? I mean, I think about, um, you know, getting together with people for dinner or, you know, inviting people over for brunch or, you know, all of those things. And I think that, you know, separating the act of just eating, um, you know, providing nutrition or getting nutrition and the act of, you know, sharing a meal with someone is so like vastly different that, you know, you almost can't even, you know, you can't even think of them as, as one in the same thing. Because if you look in, you know, the history of humanity, sharing meals is really what started our culture. Because before, um, when we were basically gathering food um, while walking during the day, there was no time that humans kind of got together and, and were able to sort of have that um, community. And so it was only after we started cooking food that there was that time where food was being prepared and people were um, together all at the same time. And I think that that's such a fundamental part of what makes us human that I hope that that doesn't happen. I, I think it would be bad if it did. Eating. Wow, that would be so sad. I love cappuccinos and uh, I love traveling. That's one of my greatest experiences, traveling and the food and the flavors and the smells and the tastes. Yeah, or, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's um, I, I mean, imagine you, I mean, so many people are starving in the world, but, uh, and I would understand that in that, those particular cases, but 
God, I, I like flying into Mumbai, you can almost smell it and taste it before you land. It's one of the most beautiful aspects of, of traveling. And now our second prediction of the episode, that Kurzweil has predicted by the 2040s, non-biological intelligence will be a billion times more capable than biological intelligence, a.k.a. you and I. So up first with a reaction is James with the Institute for Community Prosperity, followed by Brianna, Disrupting Goods AI expert. So the one of the implications of that is... Um, who, who are we then to these super intelligences? Um, are we, so are we a separate species, in which case are we like um, bonobos or chimpanzees to humans today, such that their future, whether we have bonobos or chimpanzees on this planet, is entirely up to us, 100% in our hands as human beings. Right? So we are their overlords, whether we like it or not, whether that's uncomfortable to say or not. We are. So we are setting the stage for a future where we are somebody else's chimpanzee or somebody else's bonobo, maybe. Right. So will they be merciful? Will they be benign? Will they, you know, put us in a human zoo and keep us happy? Um, or is there another alternative where actually we co-evolve with the machines so that we're almost indistinguishable from the machines, which might be the better route to go? Because then it makes the question of what is a human and what is a superintelligence uh, more indistinguishable. Hmm. It's a crazy, these are crazy questions to contemplate, but they're necessary questions to contemplate. Uh, so I, I, right now, I mean, this idea of like a, the, a, a cobot or collaborative intelligence or, you know, where we are part synthetic and part biological um, may actually be the best, maybe the best approach going forward because the alternative is like we're just an animal and we can't even contemplate what that intelligence will think of us. Are we just going to be ants underfoot? I don't know. So, right. uh, yeah, these are really important. These, this is a much more important question than any social issue we can identify right now, I think, including climate change. This is the number one thing that you think we should be talking about. I do think so, yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, it's still early days, but it's not that early days. We, we are living with a lot of forms of weak or narrow artificial intelligence as it is, and um, it won't be long, won't be long before these questions become urgent, necessary, ubiquitous. As far as the non-biological intelligence being more capable than us, um, in some ways, we, we're already there. Because if you look at some of the narrow artificial intelligence applications, they are already a billion times more capable than us, uh, you know, at doing certain things. And so what I think is really going to be important is understanding the things that we feel are important to ourselves and our own humanity. So, you know, it may not be a big deal, as I said, my mom to have a Roomba that can, you know, vacuum her home, but 
you know, we may want to say, you know, things like making dinner, let's say, if you're cooking for a loved one, that may be something that you never want to replace, something that's fundamentally important to you. And so, you know, I think that having this idea of a non-biological intelligence being more capable than us is absolutely something that is going to happen. Um, and it's something that we need to prepare for and think about what we want to do and what is important to us when something like that happens. There absolutely is an arms race in artificial intelligence right now. And so what makes that scary is that you have countries who are going to have a real challenge competing when the technology is good enough um, to perform a lot of these tasks that you know we're setting them to now. And so you can imagine that um, just like in the in Industrial Revolution, you have a few countries who are able to make rapid progress in their economic system to provide a great deal of value. And then you'll have, um, you'll have countries that are essentially left behind. And I think that that is a huge threat to the economic order of the world because it's gonna be separating the world into um, sort of winners and losers at a very rapid pace. And it's gonna be a major source of inequality. And so if you look at the distribution of the people who are working in artificial intelligence, it's predominantly um, in, pr not completely, but predominantly in developed countries. Um, so both um, China and India are also have really strong um, institutions and, and um, companies within the artificial intelligence area. So it's not 100%. But there's definitely going to be a challenge where, you know, you have countries that are already rich who are accelerating more quickly away from the rest of the nations in the world. I mean, the nice thing about artificial intelligence, though, um, the nice thing about any technology is that um, because it's not a physical good, it's not like, you know, a mine or it's not, you know, like a, a, a coal mine or, or whatever, um, because it's not a physical asset, it's a lot easier to be able to um, distribute that, um, you know, through geographic boundaries. Um, so that's definitely a positive area about the technology in artificial intelligence, but it still means that there's going to be a challenge to, to be able to have the um, infrastructure in place to be able to support that. So, you know, for example, mechanisms to collect and use data. Um, the more data that you have and you collect, the better that you um, can do in prediction and, and creation of some of these systems. And so if you don't have the in infrastructure to be able to do that, then it's going to be really challenging for you to uh, do anything with an AI system. And so, you know, w I think that we're in for a, a rapid acceleration of progress, um, followed by sort of some countries moving away from, from the rest of them. Before we wrap up our first episode, 
We just wanted to say that if this podcast gets your little gray cells hungry for more about how the social profit sector can get better at doing good, we recommend listening to Pause, a podcast from Alberta Social Innovation Connect. In Pause, partners and collaborators take a moment to sit down together, reflecting on the work they're doing to address the root causes of complex problems in their communities. You'll hear reflective dialogue from people working to shift the status quo to new or different ways of working. For example, through social innovation labs, social enterprise models, and coalitions and networks. You can subscribe to Pause in your local podcast player of choice, or you can find Pause at absiconnect.ca slash podcast. Thank you. And now back to the end of the show. And that's it for this episode of Disrupting Good. We hope you enjoyed it. This show was made by Brianna Brownell, James Dodge, Brian DeLottenville, Heather McPherson, Leo Rothschild, Helena Turner, Carl Swarney, Raheem Sajan, Doug Watson, Jay Baydala, Colson Prophet, Elise Martinoski, and me, Matt Ewens. Special thanks to Colson Proudfoot for his production time and attention. Thanks to Human Elements for hosting this episode at disruptinggood.com and to the Institute for Community Prosperity at Mount Royal University for their generous support for this project. I'm at Matt Ewens on Twitter, and you'll hear us next time on Disrupting Good when our guests discuss trends they're excited or fearful of, and if we're actually going to be entering a utopian Star Trek-like reality, or if a Hunger Games slash Blade Runner dystopian future awaits us. All next time in Episode 3 of Disrupting Good.